Welcome to the podcast of Greenlight Bookstore. This is the quarantine season. While Greenlight isn't currently hosting in-person gatherings, we're still striving for ways to create connection around books. Thanks to the gracious efforts of authors and interviewers scattered across the country and the world, we've taken our events programming online, hosting live readings, conversations, and audience questions via Zoom. Our podcasts this season are a record of those intimate conversations between thinkers and creators speaking from separate rooms, and a window into the ways that ideas and stories connect us all. Once you've listened to the conversation, you can purchase the books mentioned in this podcast at Greenlight's two bookstore locations in Brooklyn, or on our website at greenlightbookstore.com. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to tonight's live online author event with Greenlight Bookstore. I'm Katie from Greenlight, and we're thrilled to host tonight's event with Disha Filia presenting her new book, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. She'll be talking with Kiese Lehman, so you're in for an excellent time. Before we start, I just want to say a huge thanks to Disha, Kiese, and the team at West Virginia University Press for making this happen, and to all of you for showing up. So we're not able to host events in our store spaces. Our community of authors and readers is still here. We're grateful for your support and for the chance to make space for conversation and connection. We are recording tonight's event, so look for audio or video versions on our social media channels later on. And importantly, tonight's featured book, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, is available for sale from Greenlight Bookstore. We're excited to be able to offer actual shopping at our bookstore locations, 12 p.m. to 7 p.m. every day of the week. And you can purchase Fisha's book and many others on site. Or you can order online at greenlightbookstore.com for a quick pickup in the store or for shipping anywhere in the U.S. If you care about supporting the careers of authors and the ongoing existence of independent bookstores, buying tonight's featured book is a great way to show your support. Our interviewer tonight is Kiese Lehman, award-winning author of Heavy, an American memoir, named a Best Book of 2018 by the New York Times, Publishers Weekly, NPR, Broadly, BuzzFeed, The Washington Post, Entertainment Weekly, and more. He is also the author of the essay collection, How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America, and Long Division, a novel. He teaches at the University of Mississippi and has taught at Vassar College and the Iowa Writers Workshop. He will be speaking with our featured author, Disha Filia. Her writing on race, parenting, gender, and culture has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, McSweeney's, The Rumpus, Brevity, Two Night, and elsewhere. Originally from Jacksonville, Florida, she currently lives in Pittsburgh with her daughters. Her new book, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, explores the raw and tender places where Black women and girls dare to follow their desires and pursue a momentary reprieve from being good. The nine stories in this collection feature four generations of characters grappling with who they want to be in the world caught as they are between the church's double standards and their own needs and passion. Please take it away. Hey. Uh, <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Good, Man, good to I'm, uh, see you. I'm so happy to be here with you right now. I mean, <laughs> I mean, like, we were talking on the phone, like, a few times a week while you were finishing this book. And yes. now, and now, not <laughs> only is it a finalist for the National Book Award, but... <laughs> fucking this pandemic plague movement moment is upon us and we talking to each other in front of motherfuckers on a screen fam and i'm looking at all the folks that are chiming in and just so many people that we love and they're giving us so much love i'm thrilled to be here um in general but especially with you um you know how much you mean to me you know how much you mean to this book Mm-hmm. Um, coming to fruition. Um, so I'm going to start crying. <laughs> I'm sorry. Don't start Thank crying you. yet. Because <laughs> you got to read Peach Cobbler before you cross, man. I'll, if I get out of this mug and you don't read Peach Cobbler, I'm going to be tight. Um, right. but, okay. but but for All real, right. though, can I just say, fam, like, I love you so you too. much. 
And like, if you don't know Disha, you know how much she loves us when you read this book, fam. I mean, like, and, and, and we're going to talk about all of this and I'm probably going to say things that, you know, I might embarrass you because I just, okay. I, I, I'm absolutely categorically in love with what you did with this text. But everybody hasn't read the book yet. So I'm wondering if we could get it started by just having you read a few pages from what is my favorite short story in the collection today. I think it changes week by week. But today, <laughs> I would love to hear you read Peach Cobbler, if that's okay. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, I'm going to read, uh, let's see here. I'll read the first two pages. My mother's Peach Cobbler was so good, it made God himself cheat on his wife. When I was five, I hovered around my mother in the kitchen watching, close enough to have memorized all the ingredients and steps by the time I was six, but not too close to make her yell at me for being in the way, and not close enough to see the exact measurements she used. She never wrote the recipe down. Without having to be told, I learned not to ask questions about that cobbler or about God. I learned not to say anything at all about him hunching over our kitchen table every Monday eating plate after plate of peach cobbler and then disappearing into the bedroom I shared with my mother. Mm. I became a silent student of my mother and her cobbler making ways even when I was older and no longer believed that God and Reverend Troy Neely were one and the same. I still longed to perfect the sweetness and textures of my mother's cobbler. My mother, who fed me TV dinners, baked a, a peach cobbler with fresh peaches every Monday, her day off from the diner where she waited tables. She always said Sunday was her Saturday and Monday was her Sunday. What I knew was that none of her days were for me. Mm. And for many of those Mondays off and on during my childhood, God, to my child's mind, would stop by and eat an entire eight by eight pan of cobbler. My mother never ate any of the cobbler herself. She said she didn't like peaches. She would shoo me out of the kitchen before God could offer me any, but I doubted he would have offered even if I'd sat right down next to him. God was an old fat man, like a black Santa, and I imagined my mother's peach cobbler contributing to his girth. Some Mondays, God would arrive after dinner and leave as I lay curled up on the couch watching Little House on the Prairie in the living room. Other times, my mother and God would already be in the bedroom when I got home from school. I could hear moaning and pounding like a board hitting a wall as soon as I entered the house. I would shut the front door quietly behind me and tiptoe down the hall to listen outside the bedroom door. Oh God, oh God, oh God, my mother would cry. Dear God, too, his voice low and growly saying, yes, yes, yes. You know what's crazy? And then at the <laughs> end of that story, um, you, you, there's this two, long, two lines, and then I dropped my fist. Because in the meantime, I had nowhere to go. And the buildup yeah. to that, because, you know, she gets smacked twice. Right. Yeah. And just the build up to that, fam, was just like, you know, OK, OK, I'm, I'm not going to be professional tonight at all. And, no, and I don't care. It's if me. People, you know, I, I'm just going to be in love, fam, because like I, I just think what you've done with 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 this story, with the collection as a whole, 
one of the biggest questions I really wanted to ask you and that mm-hmm. I'm afraid to ask you in front of people is like, could you have done this had you gone through the traditional New York publishing routes? Could you have done what you pulled off in Ooh. this book? <laughs> I'm sorry, Sam. I just want to talk, talk. No, no. I love the question. And I don't know. I can't say with any confidence that I would because I only have my one other prior publishing um, experience, which was with a smaller press that only published clinicians, like people with letters right. after their name, but they had the vision of um, a co-parenting book written by co-parents, even though we right. weren't lawyers, we weren't um, uh, social workers or therapists. And so I had that um, editing and publishing experience, um, which was fine. And then all I know about big publishing is I know your story. You just bought your shit back. And I'm, right, you know, right, so I know right. how that goes. I, I read the essays in uh, How to Kill Yourself and Others slowly um, and know what your publishing experience is. I have other friends who've had publishing experiences and their stories are not mine to tell. Um, but what those stories helped me to do was really doubly appreciate the experience I had at West Virginia University Press. Um, the editing experience, um, I I don't know that I would have gotten that somewhere else. The respect, the, the respect for these characters and their voices and me as the authority on this culture. Right. Unparalleled, I think, based on what I've heard from, you know, other folks, um, who had other situations. Um, I never had to defend Blackness. I never had to, uh, I, I didn't deal with somebody white trying to tell me what these Black women would say or do. Um, there was so much respect in the process. And still, the book that you, that's here is a better book than what I submitted in my manuscript. So Ooh. I still had a fantastic editor who made it a better book than what I gave her, but, but I didn't have to fight for it. I didn't have to prove anything about how we talk and, and and how we do. And so, um, I, you know, one of the last edits that was made and my editor's name is Sarah Georgie and I just appreciate her so much. Um, it was in the story, Jael, And um, there's a line where the great grandmother says, I stay prayed up and I can't remember what Sarah did, but you know, tense is all, you know, mixed up in there. And so she was like, should it be this? And I said, no, no, no. That's the, that's the way we say, I stay prayed. I stay prayed up. I stay prayed up, you know, present tense. And she of course had not heard that um, expression before. But we were good after that. Like, it was uh-huh. always, I wonder if, and just asking for clarification, not putting me in a defensive place. It was such respect for the culture. Um, she did fact-checking, right? And she was like, okay, I fact-checked everything, but I couldn't verify that uh, uh, large crabs cost $7 a dozen in Jacksonville, Florida in 1985. <laughs> Are you sure? And I was like, um, or na- 1984. I said, I'm positive. And she was like, okay, we'll just check that off. But wow. she was in the weeds like that and with so much love and respect. So I hope, I mean, I, I would hope for all of us that regardless that, that we don't have to 
be it one place or another to get that kind of love for our work that yeah. we can get it in other places. I don't know. I don't know. But I, I, I mean, I know Sarah is a special person. That's where that's what's up. And, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to, with that question, I don't want to blanket New York publishing, right? Cause there, there are right. a lot of different kinds of editors, a lot of different yeah. kinds of publishing houses, mm-hmm. but, but I do want to in this conversation for a bit, talk about the worst of New York publishing Okay. And, and I want to and I, and I want to talk about it in relationship to pleasure, because, mm. you know, we're word people. We know that this book tells you that there's like 65 different kinds of pleasure, at least. Yes. And one of the things that I hate about the worst parts of New York publishing is that in trying to what they call broaden an audience, which often is whitening an audience, mm-hmm. they actually are, are precluding black folk from taking part in pleasurable experiences created by other black people. Like this is yeah. a pleasurable book, not just mm-hmm. because you're exploring the politics of pleasure, the politics mm-hmm. of church, the politics of sexuality and sensuality, mm-hmm. but like the, but, but the, but you know, stay prayed up. The fact that Peach yeah. Cobbler like repeats over and over and over and over again. And that means so much, you know, before we got on here, I was like, I want you to read. And I got it confused. I started calling it pound cake. Because pound cake and peach cobbler were not just comfort That's, food in our house. They were yes. pleasurable foods, right? So yes. can we talk a bit about the pleasure you had in knowing yeah. you had created a book that would create pleasure in other people like me and yes. other people who were at this thing tonight? Yes. Um, one thing that someone um, noted is that there aren't any white people in this book. Um and I'm thinking about Toni Morrison and I'm thinking about August Wilson, who were both asked about their focus on um, black people exclusively and black life exclusively. And they both, um, you know, kind of threw the question back. You know, Toni Morrison, you know, was like, you wouldn't have asked me that if I was a white author, you know, about black people. And August Wilson said, you know, there's no facet of the human experience that's not reflected in black life. I could write about the black experience in America forever. And, um, and so, you know, they, they gave me those marching orders. They gave me that comfort. Um, and so I only thought about us. I, I only imagined that it would be our gaze, right? Um, at the same time, the book is accessible to everybody. And so it is possible to do that. Um, and it, and, And it was nice that I didn't have an editor or anybody telling me I had to put people in this book who weren't already in there to so that the other people could relate to it. I didn't have that experience. And I'm I'm really thankful for that. Um, And black laughter, black pleasure, whether, you know, the humor and sex, those are the two places where like we really have to seek that out. They're not a lot of platforms for that, for us. I'm thinking about um, Fran Ross's uh, uh, novel, Oreo, that somebody had to bring it back. A a black woman scholar brought it back, just like Alice Walker brought back um, Zora Neale Hurston's work. The first and maybe only at this point, I don't know, satirical novel by a black woman. Um, Mm. You know, so laughter is pleasure, sex is pleasure, sex, you know, all of it's complicated. Um, And so, um, you know, I, I was like, go home or go hard for me. Like I couldn't be, 
um, inhibited writing these stories because the whole point was what happens, what are, what are those interior lives? What are those secrets? What are those things that we say as Black women, either only to other Black women or only to ourselves or only to our journals? Um, and there is there are those pleasures that in many cases we do keep secret. Um, and so it would not do for me to hold back in a book about that, right? No, and right. so I had to I had to step up. And and you know, one of the things I love about um I mean, one of the things I really love about Morrison, uh Robert Jones has his new novel coming out called A Prophet. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Now these are these are different books completely. Yes. But one of the things I love about all of those books and I love about this book, Disha, is like you in some way dare us to catch up from page one. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. when you set that story out, like we have to catch, like we have to catch up those parts of us that are puritanical, those parts yeah. of us that are of the church and we know, no, but we haven't seen, yeah. seen it. And, and yeah. you know, so, much. so with that first story, talk about the sequencing and what you yes. hope to achieve by, by, by putting Eula as the first, first. story. So a little bit of it was sentimental in that Eula was the first story of the nine that was published uh, when I was, you know, publishing these. Some of the stories in here have, were published before it became a book. And um, so it was a little sentimental. But more than that, I did what I, you know, what you just said, which was like, you got to check in with all that puritanical stuff. I'm going to yeah. put it here right up front to let you know how we're getting down in this collection and you can rock with us or not, you know, yes. and that's cool. But to know exactly what you're in for with that book, it's one of the most um, pro uh, provocative stories, one of the most titillating. It has the most sex, I think. Um, it has also the most Bible in it too. Yes. You yes. know, so it's like both of those things happening at the same time and you know it's it's um it's like a warning almost like this is you know what you're in store for so that was a very intentional choice and that part in that story when when they're talking about virginity and then the one yeah. character is like uh you know what what we've been doing you know what I'm saying like and, and it's so interesting because it's such a short story but at that point i'm thinking 90 percent of the readers are still like uh look you know what I mean? Like, I just think that's hard to pull off um, in the story. <laughs> Here's another question that I want to ask you, not 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 just Disha, the, the 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 person personality, but you know, the sister who I love. Do you find pleasure in the Bible? You know, it's been a minute since I read the Bible. Yeah. So I would not make it as a blanket statement, but I have found pleasure, and not in the places where they, you know, usually say like. Song of Solomon, oh. <laughs> um, you know, everybody talks about that, but <laughs> I find pleasure in like the dark stuff, like Jael. Right. Like the reason I wrote that story is because somewhere I read about that story in the Bible and then I was like, she did what? So right. I went and got the Bible and I looked it up and, um, and I, I was just fascinated by the, the story of this woman. Like the, I like to retell it like this. Like he knew what he was getting into. He went to his enemy's wife's house, right. tired. 
so you know we can talk about what his motivations were there so i thought <laughs> that's curious right. and he he's tired from battle his army's fighting her husband's army and he like comes to her house and then she did as we do oh come on in you know we right. you know hospitality and he asked for water and she gave him heavy cream. So like you asked for just a little bit. I'm going to give you more than what you asked for. He should have known right then. But, you of know. Of course. <laughs> and then so he drank the heavy cream. He got the itis. He fell asleep. Right. And then she nailed his head to the floor. So I was like, I did not see that coming. So that stayed with me. And then the way I write a lot of stuff is sort of like, what if, what if, what if? And so I was like, what if there was a black girl who had that name, who, you know, her people clearly were in the, you know, her, her family, they were in the church and somebody named that girl that, why did they do that? And what kind of, like, what would that mean for her life? Like what kind of girl would she become? How much would her name, you know, uh, influence that? And then, you know, kind of the, you know, writer side took over and I was like, okay, if I did this parallel, and so she's she does something like what the woman in the Bible does. What does she do, and why? Um, so I, um, I you know I find pleasure in like that dark stuff. No doubt. <laughs> so. no doubt. And you know you know one of the things that I that I like you know you sent me a version of this. I mean, pandemic got my head messed up. I don't know. Okay. I don't remember when it was, but it, it felt mm-hmm. like it was a year ago. Was it a year ago? Last year, all this happened in a year. All this I happened met last you year? in March of last year. <laughs> Sam, that's crazy because there was a point when I had read the joint and you were and you were like, I gotta work on these two more stories to get yeah. it get to get it right. Um, but I've been reading the Bible a lot for this new project mm-hmm. I'm working on, and I've been thinking about the way um tales slash stories slash chapters mm-hmm. end. And, you know, most most stories and narratives, you know, either end on like a resolution, a realization. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. some really great ones consistently end on like a really messy revelation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I feel like in, a dis- in addition to the character interactions that you that you portray so well, the dramatic scenes that you just render incredibly well, the Thank sights. You the traditions that you unravel and then re-ravel and unravel. I just think you're doing something consistently well with like revelation and ending. And, and I wanted to, and I think revelation is completely different than resolution, which yes. is what capitalism yes. necessitates, right? That's one of yes. my questions about New York, but yeah. like, could you talk to me about like, if you're, if you are attempting when you end, not just this book, mm-hmm. but when you end these stories, are you thinking mm-hmm. about like, are you thinking about revelation? And sometimes revelation can be very slow. I mean, very, mm-hmm. very soft. But it's like mm-hmm. there's a reveal in almost every last line. Yeah. I, you know, I have to go back and look at the endings of each story because I'm going to be teaching um, a master class at a university. And, I, and I, I, it's up to me. And I think I want to do it on endings in this, mm-hmm. in this book. And, um, and so I... Everyone is different. Every single one is different. There's some stories in here where I knew what the last line was going to be before I finished the story. And it was like I was writing to that. And so um, I I wish I could say that, 
you know, there was a particular way yeah. that I approached it, but every story just asked for something different. Um, the, the ending that I love the most yeah. is um, with uh, In Dear Sister, where it's the P.S., Grandma yes. wants to know if you're pregnant. That's the <laughs> like, best. That's that it, was man. the ending where I was like, I was like, you know, pat my own self on the back. I was like, that's nice. That's, that's nice. nice. You did that. <laughs> it, just, it felt right. It really felt right. Um, I struggled with, um, I struggled with happy endings right. because I had to get out of the, and maybe it's the whole revelation versus resolution right. but for whatever reason um i had to get past this idea that somehow the ending couldn't like people couldn't just be in love and right. that people couldn't right. just be okay um right. and so you've got stories in here where people are not okay at the end or you don't know how they are at the end um and so um how to make love to a physicist and snowfall where you end with you know, uh, with scenes of people um, loving each other was weird that like, I was like, is this, is this like, you know, is it too sickening sweet? Is it too, <laughs> you know, saccharine? I don't, it's yeah. the whole dark thing. Like I have to tell myself, everything doesn't have to be dark, you know, but right. I like the way you framed it, which is those were both revelatory moments. But you know, as opposed yeah. to like happy ending versus not sure. happy, but there was you know revelation for everybody, um, you know, in, involved in those. And then uh, when Eddie Levert comes, um, this is so <laughs> weird. Like the the I knew I wanted to end with the mother singing, you know, that last part of the of of um, forever mine. Um, so I felt like I was writing towards that moment. I just, I knew that because I love the OJ so much and I <laughs> love that song and, and they were my mother's favorite group. Um, and so sometimes it was like, I, I treat writing like a math problem. Like, how do I get right. from here to there? Or if I put these three things together, what's going to happen? But you so, know what's, you know what's, you know what's crazy to me, fam? And I and, and and I'm saying crazy, like I mean I mean that word like in the dopest, most loving way possible. It's like Thank you. we were talking about this book and all kinds of other shit, right? Months ago. Yeah. Yeah. And now you got people up in here talking about the the stories the way our people used to talk about the stories. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Like these motherfuckers yeah. in the chat, they talk about the stories. Like my grandma and I used to talk about Victor and them. You know what I'm saying? Victor, <laughs> who is in my book? I, you know, yes, I, I know. Victor, Jill and Miss Chancellor. And them. Yes. Um, people talk to me. They want to fight the mother and Peach Cobbler. Um, people want to meet a dude like Eric Terman. Shit, I want to meet a dude like Eric Terman. Uh, <laughs> <you know? laughs> so. Um, okay, but but here here I want to make sure I get people because because people have been reading this book and interacting and feeling this book so much much more I think than just like a regular Zoom. I want to make sure we get people's questions in, and also these are people we love. Um, Alex Hardy I, says, yes. "What food hey, represents both of your moods right now?" Oh, did you say both of my moods? I think he but, means both. I think he means you and me. Oh, you. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, like, I think. I think and Alex Hardy is yeah, like a yeah, full, yeah. full dude. He's okay, a full dude. Alex. 
So I got shout out to Alex. Alex has been getting a lot of black folks through this pandemic with these uh, virtual work sessions. Right. So you feel less alone. You get your work done and you, you know, thank you, Alex, because you have gotten so many of us through it. Um, For me, my mood right now is I got to say biscuits. I got to say biscuits um, specifically with lavender honey because that's that's been this like pandemic moment i perfected my flaky cutout biscuits and then i found a a a black family owned bee farm and i bought some lavender honey from them and like it's just an experience of eating the baking it and then eating it um and comfort it's comfort it is literal you know we need that comfort right now and we can find it in a lot of places but i have found comfort in biscuits and lavender honey in this pandemic how about you oh shit (laughs) 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 this is my yo you remember that cosby show where the motherfucker was tapping and then the dude like challenge and yeah Fam, I, I I can't compete with that, but gee, like I've been having a rough a rough month, so I I just okay. been I found I found pleasure in the fucking oatmeal pie two days ago. You know them? Like you like what's that? Like the no, you know I know what oatmeal little Debbie's, like, little fam. Debbie's, okay, little All Debbie's. Right. I was just like, you know, sometimes you just feel like shit, and you're like, yo, I wonder if that shit food that I used to eat would make me feel better. Yeah. And the answer is yeah. always no. Yeah. But <laughs> I ate the fuck the out of that. Nostalgia. The nostalgia. For sure. the, and, and isn't everything tinier than you remember? No, I was like, did his <laughs> hands get bigger? Or did these motherfuckers get tiny? Because I remember <laughs> I remember the oatmeal patio. Like, I, I don't want to get it. This ain't about my eating habits. Let's let's keep on getting the people here. So okay. this is from Robert, Robert Jones. Disha, do hey, you Robert. realize how this work places you on a plane with and in possession of the direct inheritance? From Zora Neale Hurston, Alice Walker, Toni Morrison, Gloria Naylor, and Gail Jones. And if so, how does that feel? What does it mean to you that 100 years from now, folks will be reading this book and it will inform tons of scholarship? You just took my breath away. The idea of that just makes, um, just stops me in my tracks. I feel good about that because if that comes to fruition, that means that people will be talking about black women and pleasure and desire and freedom for a long time Mm -hmm. in this way, in this way of us telling our own stories, um, us telling the truth about ourselves and our mothers (laughs) um, and the church um, so the idea of that um, makes my heart glad that if this means that Black women are going to be centered in the conversation, in the canon, Black Southern women, that's what I want. That's what I want. And so I hope that comes to fruition. That's what's important to me um, for that to be forever so that when people talk about um you know, the books that should be taught and the writing that should be taught and the stories that endure and the stories that are timeless. Um, Black women should have always been in the center there. Um, So 
I hope that that comes to fruition so that we can can have that place and not just one place, right? And because um, we are not a monolith. Right. Um, and so adding these women and their stories alongside Morrison and Naylor and all those other women who um, I grew up reading um, as a teenager to understand what was possible for me as a black woman, just like I looked at the women at the church and the women outside of the church. I was I've always been looking at black women, including black women writers, to see what's possible. Mm. Um, and so I hope that this book can take a place like what Robert described so that other black girls and other black women can see what's possible to see that it's possible to be free, that it's possible to um, not hold your breath and suck in your stomach and take off a girdle and tell your mama no and, you know, and choose yourself first. So I hope so. And you know what, fam? Like, I wasn't going to say this, but um, and I probably should say it in code because I didn't ask you if I could say this out loud. You can say, you know, the one only one, you know, you can ask me. Okay. So there was a point last year when professionally you made a decision that made you that made me real that made me so fucking scared for you but also it made me rethink this old you know the idea now you like trust black women i think yeah. i think i had not thought about it from the pov of a black woman and what i saw you doing in that situation was trusting yourself and 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 i was just like i didn't ever say this but i was just like don't like are you sure you want to do that, fam? Are you sure you want to, like, put all of your fucking eggs, whatever the fuck, ducks over here? <laughs> and you were like, I got to do this. And you did it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, I was working uh, for a Fortune 100, Fortune 200 company, a bank in corporate communications. And I had been there three years. And it was... Um, the polite way we said it, it was a toxic work environment. Um, and, uh, and I said, I'm out by December. And by December, I felt like financially I could maybe, you know, be ready then. Um, but then one day, um, the person that I, uh, reported to, um, was on that bullshit again. And we were about to have a conversation. I was about to get talked to, and I could overhear her preparing for this conversation with me. And I don't know, Kiese, like, I just started packing my shit up. Like, I didn't, I didn't have a plan. <laughs> I, what, what I knew was that she was not going to talk at me or talk to me that day. I didn't know anything beyond that other than I'm grown and that this is not going to happen. Um, and so I packed my stuff up. And um, I even cleaned up like all the stuff that was garbage. Like I threw it all away and I had, you know, it, most women know you got the extra bags at work. So I had all of my other, you know, all my shoes that I kept at work, all that stuff. So I had two big bags. I left their little key. I left the laptop, all of that stuff, cleaned the desk off. I packed up um, my kids pictures and um, walked downstairs and um stood on the sidewalk and I resigned by email on my, my phone. And then I got on the bus and I went home and I didn't know what was going to happen after that. I, all I knew was that I could not, 
do that another minute of having somebody tell me who I am and what I can do and someone who needed me to be small. So um, somebody interviewed me recently and they wanted to have the dramatic narrative of I quit my job so I would have more time to write. I was like, my book was done. Like I Word. <laughs> it was not it. Word. I, I left because I um, decided, you know, that that was enough and decided that I had hit my, my limit of, of being in that box. I I was not going to be in that box. Um, and it was other black women who supported me, um, you know, in material ways to help me, you know, get to that point. Um, but yeah, that's what I did. I didn't know you were worried. (laughs) Fail. It's just the black Mississippi, you know, we always like, you got to have a job or two before you quit it. You know what I'm saying? Always. I, and and you, you know, Florida. right. In Florida, <laughs> so, same thing. And like, and, and we can talk about this off. I want to make sure we get everybody, yeah. but I just want to say um, that that kind of, it's not will, it's not courage. It's just, it's, it's beyond anything I can concretize here, but that belief in yourself, yeah. like that belief yeah. in, in real talk, that belief that you are worth more than being treated like shit. Like, yes. I talk yeah. a lot of shit at my job, but that's because I've taken a lot of shit at my job. And and, mm-hmm. and I've never, ever in my job life had the wherewithal to leave one when I didn't have another one, which is how they get yeah. us, right? Yeah. But anyway, I just wanted to bring that up because yeah. I think that too was in the tradition of of, of Hurston and Naylor and mm-hmm. I would even add Tony K. Um, okay, so yes. Lisa Blair asks, what will it take for Black writers to get the same respect i.e. not telling you how black women will talk, walk, be, and paycheck as white writers. What will it take for black writers to get the same respect and paycheck as white writers? Um, It's going to take more black people in publishing being gateways instead of gatekeepers. And um, I'm 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 like giving out all the the secrets, but um, the National Book Awards ceremony is coming up and all final, all of us have to write an acceptance speech because you don't know if you're going to win or not. So you have to have one ready. And so I started working on mine and I have a line in there thanking you, KSA, for being a gateway and not a gatekeeper in publishing and getting and saying there's this, there's room for so many of us at the table instead of this mindset that somehow we're in competition with each other. We're not in competition with white people either, and we're not in competition with each other. It is, here's a table, there is a bounty. We are the bounty. Come and sit with me. Come and get this book deal. Come and get this blurb. And so that's what we need is the people, the Black folks who have the power, and we are seeing more and more Black folks moving into those positions of power, um, be gateways for each other. Um, Because white folks may or may not do right by us, but at a minimum, we need to do right by each other when we can. And Toni Morrison, I mean, we could quote her all night. She She said, you know, the point of freedom is to help somebody else get free. Right not just for you right and so when when that happens then we just keep it going right and so and now i'm in a position to do for somebody else what you did for me 
and I'm going to do it every chance I get. Well, thank you for doing for me <laughs> while you thought <laughs> I was doing for you. So, um, <laughs> and also I just feel like Damon, I just, I just feel like sometimes yes. I just feel like we need to throw Damon, you know, like Damon Young, um, love him made made a way for a lot of different people do you know a lot of different yeah, sensibilities that yeah. that we might yeah. not even you know I, I i had a book out before damon did but but damon way damon young made a way for me to actually like be free enough to talk to you you know what i'm saying yeah. because y'all was both from pittsburgh and my boy ryan canty's yeah. from pittsburgh and my cousins yeah. in there from and then you know we met at that that event that night it was in that like yeah. weird hotel slash like the Ace. boys club in the gym it used to be a ymca <laughs> oh, yeah i was like i was getting mad boys club vibes off of that shit um <laughs> okay oh one day, I would love to pay whatever amount of money to see you and Miriam Williams speak. So Miriam Williams asked. She's in here. Yes. Hi, Disha. Hey. I felt like the narrator in Peach Cobbler is the same person as the narrator in The Rules for Married Husbands. Does that parallel exist for you? It was absolutely, uh, Miriam, and I did not plan that. I think subconsciously, I couldn't let that girl go. And it's what you said, um, Kiese, like the revelation happened, but not the resolution. And mm -hmm. all we knew is that she didn't have anywhere to go. We didn't know where she went. We didn't know, you know, how things turned out for her. Mm -hmm. And and she was still with me when I was writing that story. So Instructions for Married Christian Husbands is not the last story in the book, but it's the last one I wrote. And wow. I was writing it and then there's this part where she's talking about herself and she was like, and I make the best peach cobbler in town. I was like, it's her. It's her right? <laughs> and I used to think that like writers were lying when they say that like the characters spoke to me and the character right. showed up and all that. I was like, yeah, that's some bullshit. But it really did. It really did happen like that. Um, and it gave me some closure i guess in that you know we can debate whether she turned out okay or not it depends on your definition of okay it depends on yeah. your definition of free right. um but that absolutely is a tie that's there um and i've had people ask me too like once they saw that tie then they were like are there other ties that i miss there are no other ties i can say that you know oh, they are all standalone. why you tell them <laughs> you know if you ain't tell me these motherfuckers would be like hell and i know this the same thing you know <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'll let him off the hook with that. But um, oh, I just want to circle back and give a shout out uh, to Damon Young. Also, man, I've known Damon since like the early 2000s, back when we were both blogging and before VSB was VSB. And, um, and Damon is someone who is also a gateway and not a oh, gatekeeper. Yeah. Damon okay. has been invited to do things where... Um, you know, he's the headliner and I'm, you know, inter interviewing him or whatever. And he'd be like, no, we're going to be in conversation. We're going to do this as peers. And he didn't have to do that, mm -hmm. you know, or he would say, I'll do it. But Disha's needs to do it with me. Um, mm -hmm. And so there are ways all of us have some degree of privilege um, even if it's just experience, we've got more experience at this than someone else does. And so that's what's happening with me right now that, you know, people ask me to do things. And it's like, I know so many black writers. I'm like, she can do that. 
Right. She can do that. Has she done it before? No, but I know she can. Right. And I know that I couldn't do it until somebody gave me a chance. Right. You know, and so that's That's what we have to do is like in, in our, whatever our sphere of influence is, there are opportunities that we can either pass on or share with somebody else um, who has less privilege than we do, who has less access than we do, less opportunity. Um, And this is not like what Tony Moore says, it's not a candy grab bag. I say it's pie. It's not pie, right? It's not like we're going to eat and then it's all gone, right? Right. It is not pie. Um, And so we share. No doubt. And the scarcity model t- teaches us listen not to. Sh- I mean, amongst other things, it teaches us mm-hmm. not to share, but it also teaches us to hoard, which is the difference between yes. not sharing. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I've had people yeah. ask me to write shit for them. Not not only that I couldn't do well, but like that I knew somebody else could do better than me mm-hmm. on my best day. Now, yeah, like scarcity model is like. But KSA, if you don't try, you maybe won't get another, you know, but fuck that shit. Love is no. like, love mm-hmm. is like, Disha can do that shit way, way, way better than me. Nafisa can do that better than me. Robert Jones could do that better than me. So, you know, Tremaine, so you might want to ask them. I think that mm-hmm. if we bring our best, continue to bring our best selves to this like that and talk about the scarcity model, I think, I yes. think we can keep getting better and, and be gateways, as you said, instead of gatekeepers. Child, they got right. lots of questions in here and we, we getting short on time. So let me... Do you have a specific church background and how that gets you thinking about this topic? For okay. Mary <laughs> yes. So I was sent to church from a very young age by my mother and my grandmother. And I guess I'm just little, I'm a little slow because it was only this year when I had to start thinking about like the questions people would ask me about this book. Did it dawn on me? Like, background of being sent to church, right? Because I knew my grandmother would say things like, well, I'm going to go to church when I get right, you know? And I always thought, well, I thought you'd go to church to get right, you know? So it was really confusing to me. And so my mother and my grandmother didn't go to church um, until I was in college, right? And they were in a different phase of their lives. But I realized only this year, putting two and two together, that, because you know how it is, your mama is your mama, your grandma is your grandma. You don't see them through uh, the lens that society sees them. And uh, when you were here in Pittsburgh and we were at the um, Ace Hotel, the question, somebody asked you, was it me? I don't know. Somebody asked you, what do we owe our mothers? Which I thought was an incredible oh, uh, question. Yeah, that was, and then, I think that was you. That was me. Okay, I forgot. Yeah. I was the one. And you said, we owe it to them to see them as people and not just as our mothers. And I'm guilty. Like I did not make this connection except that my mother and my grandmother both had children and never married. And my Uh grandfather was from a church family. And that's the church they sent me to as a little girl with like other people, but they didn't go because of the shame and all of those other things. And and so then when I got older, um, other people in the neighborhood, I would just go to church with the neighborhood kids wherever. So we went to... Um, AME, Baptist, Kojic, Pentecostal, like I, we were in all the churches. Um, yes. And then as a teenager, Missionary Baptist Church on my dad's side, that's where that family went. Um, and so I went to church and I watched. I was watching the women 
and you know, then puberty starts hitting and I'm like, you know, they real holy, but like, do they masturbate? Do they have right. sex? Do they like sex? I mean, clearly they had sex, they had kids, but right. does, what does that mean? And what does it mean for me? Right. And so that's because I was kind of fixated on these women and, and the women outside of the church too, because they looked like they had a lot, were having a lot more fun, but over here you told me they're going to hell. I don't want to go to hell, but I do want to have fun. I don't know what to do with this stuff, you know? Right. And then you just kind of grow up and none of that gets resolved. And, um, and in my early twenties, I married, um, before I was 30, I, I had a kid. And so the connection between all of that and these stories is when I first started writing fiction, um, I wasn't thinking I want to write about the church or I want to write about church ladies. I wanted to write about dissatisfaction, Mm. And so because I was dissatisfied, mm. but I mm. was not comfortable mm. writing nonfiction about mm-hmm. what was going on with me in my life. So I would fictionalize these dissatisfied women and they were all in the church. So I, right. I, I had three different novels I started at different times and they all had church ladies in them. And so that was what I call my first fiction impulse was to write about dissatisfied women. And then... Um, that that one novel, I made a lot of progress and then I stalled and then my agent was like, well, maybe, you know, you've been writing, writing these other stories on the side. Maybe that could be a collection. Maybe that's less daunting and overwhelming than a novel. Let's try that. What do you think? And I was like, great idea. So it was my, my agent who saw the, the church lady, you know, thread. And then I got intentional and I wrote the rest that. of it. I love that. Yeah. Um. There's so many questions here, and and, and we don't have <laughs> much time. But I want I want to make I want to get to some of them that I think okay. might not have. Um, yeah, you know, I want I want to get a few in this possible. So so yeah. Tracy Thomas, incredible creative, you know, of the Stacks uh, podcast. If y'all haven't, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, please get on the Stacks. Um, what if anything do awards mean to you or say to you about your work? So again, I'm a watcher. I'm a listener. Um, I'm a big KSA Layman fan and KSA Layman don't talk about awards and stuff like that. So I, you know, I'm not real pressed. And then there are people who have gotten awards, uh, writers that I've admired and they were so unhappy because they didn't get these other awards. Sure. And I'm sitting there like, well, damn, you got books though. Like I hadn't even finished the book. <laughs> you got, like, I just you got books book. though. <laughs> I just can I just finish a book? Can I just get a book published? And so what I saw years ago was that the way that people can be about awards is it's never enough. It's never enough, right? And so the award can't be the thing. But I also don't want to be that person who's like, oh, I don't care about awards. I mean, I'm absolutely thrilled to be nominated for a National Book Award full stop. Um, I would also be happy if I had not been na- nominated for a national book right. award. I'd be happy because of the people who send me messages and say, I saw myself in these stories, or I'm reading with this with my mom and my dad Word. or my 80 year old grandmother can, you know, is, I think she would like this. And I'm like, well, I'll send her a copy. So I sent this 80 year old grandma a copy for her birthday. And Miss Margaret wrote me back and I was all shamed. Like, Oh, she gonna read all this sex. <laughs> This book and she wrote it back and she was like, I love this book. 
like that makes me happy that people connected with the stories, right? Um, and so I will, I, I welcome the awards. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful, but I never want the awards to become a distraction um, and a place of, you know, where I can't enjoy the the stories and the people and the and the connection and a, a source of dissatisfaction because I'm worried about the next award. I'm worried yeah. about the like I don't want it to be that. Word. Right. That's absolutely. Um this is a tough one. Um okay. uh I don't know Taliba. I don't, I'm not sure how to pronounce Taliba. it. Taliba. Taliba. All right. So Taliba says um did you have to shift your perception of what is profane or just pleasurable and sacred to create the magic that I felt reading these stories? No, I, I didn't think of it in those terms. I trust, I had to come to trust myself. I had to come to trust the readers in general, like the sort of, the, you know, the future audience. Um, and also trust uh, my friends who read my stories before they go out into the world, right? Yeah. Um, and I trust y'all to be like, okay, that's too much, right? And and the and what you saw here, nobody said that, so I'm like, good, we're gonna go with it. Like, um, <laughs> there, there's a um, there's a line that Tashida says, a couple of things she says, and dear sister, she's the the the, the sister with the text with the you know. The, I love her. The, <laughs> and I wrote the one line. I want to say it was like rectal rooter or something like that. And I was like, oh my god, I can't believe I just wrote that. We'll see what happens. And nobody, you know, nobody blinked. So I'm like, all right, we'll go with that. Um, and then, but I, the original draft of Peach Cobbler took um, Olivia and Trevor into adulthood and they reconnect. She owns a bakery. Um, both of their parents have passed away. He comes into the bakery one day. They haven't seen each other since they were kids. And he tells her that he knew the secret. He found out about their parents. And so here they've been carrying these burdens, the secret for so long. And then I had a scene where they go in the, in the um, kitchen, in the back of the bakery and they make a peach cobbler and they have sex. And it was like, like, fine. and it wasn't like, you know, graphic or, you know, gratuitous or anything like that. It was very sweet. And nobody liked it. None of my friends wow. who read it liked it. They just was like, nah, this is not how it, no, that's not working. And so I let that go. But so that wasn't about anything being profane. Um, but, you know, I was prepared to hear from my friends who read early drafts if something was too much, you know? Yeah. All right. We got two minutes. Okay. Um, <laughs> Ryan, Ryan Canty. Hey, Pitt, Ryan. Pitt, Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh. I went to uh, college with Ryan. Love, I love that brother. Oh, wow. Um, Ryan, okay, so actually you might not want to answer this question, but let's go. Um, If this book were to be adapted into a movie or miniseries, (laughs) who do you think could play some of the characters in the book? Um, I'm not going to assign them parts, but uh, Anjanu Ellis, Sonali, Tessa Thompson, uh, Gabrielle Union, Viola Davis. Yes. Jennifer Lewis, this is like oh, my Kimberly Elise, yes, um, and just it's it's just like it's like bountiful. Like there's so many roles here 
for Black women actors. Um, and I can tease and say, something's coming, y'all. Something's coming, y'all. So. I, I, <laughs> um, okay, so, okay, it's 8, it's, it's 830. Um, okay. I want to say to all y'all who are still here, 145 of y'all, please, please do yourselves a favor. Um, love yourselves enough to read and reread. This is one of these books that I think makes you want to reread because of the intrigue, because of the pleasure, because we really don't get books like this. I mean, I haven't read a book. I haven't read this book before. So please, if you have it, reread it. If you don't have it, get it. Um, and Disha, I just want to say thank you for willing this wonderful, incredible, um, lush piece of art into the world. Thank you. And um, you want to say anything else before we get up out of here? I just thank you. I thank you for being so generous and, again, being a gateway. I cannot say enough um, how much that means to me, how much you mean to me, how much you mean to so many of us. So thank you for being you. I know that it's hard to do the things that you do as consistently and as loving as lovingly as you do, but we appreciate you. I appreciate you and I love you. I love you too. <laughs> and I just think this book loves us. So thank you, fam, thank for you. creating it. All right, y'all. All right. Thank y'all so thank much. Thank you, for everybody. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Katie and Greenlight Bookstore. Thank you, I want to thank you both so much for that fantastic discussion. And thanks to everybody for showing up. And if you miss any of tonight's discussion or if you just want to watch it again, uh, we will be posting the recording to our YouTube. So please look out for it. There. And don't forget to buy your copy of The Secret Lives of Church Ladies in-store or online at greenlightbookstore.com. Thanks so much again to you both. And thanks, everybody. Thank Have a great you. night. Love you guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Greenlight Bookstore podcast. We're grateful to our production partners at Libro FM for working with us to produce the quarantine season. Libro FM provides access to thousands of digital audiobooks through partnerships with independent bookstores nationwide. You can purchase Libro FM audiobooks at greenlightbookstore.com. You can subscribe to the Greenlight Bookstore podcast on iTunes, download it as a free audiobook from Libro FM, or stream it on greenlightbookstore.com/podcast. On the Greenlight website, you can also find links to purchase the books discussed in this episode and many more, as well as information about Greenlight's store locations and shopping hours. The best way to support your local independent bookstore and the literary communities we serve is as simple as buying a book.